Good morning. I uh, invite you to return back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Young people in the room, kids, I asked you last week if you want to draw a picture of uh, anything that you hear in the sermon and you want to give it to me, I'm going to figure out a way uh, how to post them. I haven't figured that out yet, but, uh, but we're getting there. But last week I got some great pictures, got a bunch of them. So if you're in here and you want to draw, please do. After the service, I'm going to be right up front and uh, get your parents' permission and you can come up and, uh, and uh, bring your picture to me. These are some phenomenal pictures. Now, anything that you hear in the sermon, you can draw a picture of. So we got pictures of, um, what do we have here? We got pictures here of like Jesus telling the uh, disciples to stay in Jerusalem and, and uh, Jesus ascending into heaven. We've got some great pictures there. Look at this one, man. This thing is like, you know, should be in a book somewhere, right? It's beautiful pictures. But anything that you, could, that you hear, you can draw a picture of. Uh, just, if you remember, I gave an illustration last week about the, that word, the conjunction but, and we talked about uh, peanut, peanut butter, not Nutella, right? That type of thing. Somebody drew a picture of Nutella. Okay. <laughs> So, whatever you hear, you can draw a picture of. So, listen to what I'm saying, listen to the story. I will be right here. Come on up. I'm collecting these things, and, and we'll figure out a way to, to get our artwork posted. So, thank you, guys. There's some beautiful, beautiful pieces of art here. I'm excited. I'm excited to have all of this. I'm going to collect it all, and we'll have our own little photo album of the Book of Acts, which will be really cool. So, well, would you just... Take a moment and join me as uh, I pray here for our time. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, I thank you for the great joy it is to gather as your people. I thank you for the joy it is to be together and to just worship you and to, to be your family and to enjoy each other and to lift our voices up to you, Lord. I thank you that uh, we have the privilege of gathering here, Lord, as we are under your word now, God, may it change us and shape us and cause us just to love you more. And uh, Lord, may our study just define us. Let, let these words change us that we might truly live for you and be your children. And I'm grateful that we have the privilege of, of just being together now, Lord. And I just commit this time to you in, in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into our study, I'm standing up here and I see Mohan right here. So I don't know if you've seen Mohan yet, but Mohan, stand up and say, all right, good to see him. And then, so there will be a long line of people giving you a hug, Mohan. It's good to see you here, brother. Well, as we, we get into Acts, I thought of a conversation that I had. We, we're, this is your first Sunday here. We're studying the book of Acts together. And uh, we're just beginning our study of this, and we'll spend some time going through this book. And, uh, and I thought of a conversation I had with somebody this week, or this week, a couple of years ago, actually, many years ago. But this week, I thought of this conversation. <coughs> and, uh, and it was somebody who was in a church, and the church was having all kinds of problems, really just intense problems. Leadership team was divided, and things were just kind of colliding, and, and, uh, and the people were divided, and it was just problems. And... And this guy and his friends, they got together and they said, you know what, we're done with the church. We're sick of it. We're done. 
And we're just going to go look at the book of Acts. We're going we're to just look at what they did in the book of Acts, and we're just going to do that. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to be a, you know, a New Testament church, and we're just going to study it that way. And so they did this, and this particular guy that I knew who was in the middle of this, he, I ran into him actually at a restaurant and saw him and, and asked him how it was going, and he said, well, here's what's, this is what's happening. And he proceeded to tell me all of this, and, and I just sat there. I didn't say anything. And he said, what do you think of that? And I thought, well, I understand the frustration. I understand that, that conflict comes. I mean, one of the cycles you see in the book of Acts is that they preached the word, persecution came, and then people had conflict in the body. And then we hear the word of the Lord continued to grow and disciples were being made. And then they would preach the word and then, and then persecution would come and then they'd have conflict. It, it's a cycle that goes on. So conflict's part of the, the reality. People don't always get along. It, it happens. But one of the things that he said, do you have any advice for me? I said, well, one challenge I would have for you is don't just look at the practices of the book of Acts. Don't just look at the practices Maybe you should just go one step deeper and just look at their heart, their commitment, what they were committed to. Because if you just look at the practices, you could just create a whole new form and a whole new set of rules, and you might do to everybody who goes to your new church what was done to you. And so maybe you should be looking at the heartbeat of it. Now, the reason why I thought of that this week is we're at this very unique moment. Jesus, in the story of Acts, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. The Spirit has not yet come in, in the fullness of what was promised in Ezekiel. They're in between those two worlds. They're in between the ascension of Jesus and the descending of the Spirit upon them. Here they are in between these two worlds. A unique moment. And we begin to see how they act. We begin to see what their core values were. <coughs> Excuse me. They be, we begin to see what they were really committed to, and how they operated. And what I want to do is I want to look at these core values. As we study this, I want to look at the heartbeat of what drove them. Not just what they did, but why they did it. And I'm going to tell you that there are two things that emerge in the very first days after the ascension of Jesus that are the essential core values of every child of God that will carry itself through the whole book of Acts. And I would say this. If you're missing these two things that you, we will see in this text here today, if you're missing these two things, then it doesn't really matter what you do because you've missed it all. This is it. This is like the fundamental thing, the fundamental definition. We're going to see this here. In, in your bulletin, you see what it is. Obedience and understanding. There are two components of this church that emerge. First, they obeyed Jesus, and we'll unpack that. Second, they understood their world through the lens of Scripture. They allowed the Word of God to define reality for them, to define how they lived, how they act, how they thought about things. They were given divine understanding of the Word of God, and they used that to define their world for them. And from this point forward, the child of God will be marked in the book of Acts by obeying Jesus and seeing the world through the lens of Scripture. If you miss those two things, you've missed everything. So this is very important, a very important section here in Acts. And, and I want us not to miss it. I want us to understand this. Remember I said when we began our study of Acts, I want this study, my desire would be that, that we would look back at our study of this book and we'd say, that was a defining moment in my life. That we'd go back 20 years from now and say, remember that time when we studied Acts? 
Remember I said I want hundreds and thousands of conversations where we say, remember that time. Well, in order for that to happen, we've got to see these two things here. This is the first kind of wow moment where we get a chance to tune ourselves to the book of Acts and what's here. And I want us to see this. So we're going to begin with looking at obedience. What we're going to see when we look at this obedience is that it's very simple. There's nothing profound here at all in terms of the obedience. It's simple obedience. And this is very important to catch here. Let me kind of illustrate to you why. You know, I served in the Air Force. Some of you here this room served in the Air Force as well. So you'll remember this from boot camp if you were in the Air Force. When you go through boot camp, they give you your clothes, they give you your t-shirt, your underwear, everything, they give it all to you. And then you get into your dorm, first night, and they say, okay, you need to fold your t-shirt and your underwear in a six-inch square. You have to do that. Do you know how hard it is to fold a t-shirt in a six-inch square? It is really hard. You are sitting there, right, all these men sitting on their beds trying to figure out how to fold a t-shirt in a six-inch square. It is really hard, and it has to be perfect. They give you a six-inch ruler, and you have to put that T-shirt in a six-inch square, and it has to be six inches, both directions. So you get ready. You fold your stuff, and then it's inspection time, and you're standing there, and it's not exactly six inches. It's close, you know, and you're holding your drawer with your T-shirt and underwear, you know, and the instructor's coming down. He comes to you. He puts his ruler on there, and then he takes, and it's not right, and he takes your drawer and he just launches all your clothes, right? And you're like, oh, right? And then when it's done, here's what he says. If you can't fold your T-shirt in a six-inch square, why would I let you buy my $60 million aircraft? If you can't do this, why would I let you do that? The amazing thing about obedience is that it always starts in the simple things. Always does. It always does. Parent says to the child, make your bed. Why? I'm just going to mess it up tomorrow morning or, tomorrow, or tonight when I go to bed. Why make it? You know, that's not the right answer. Right? If you can't obey me in making your bed, why would I let you go out with your friends without me around you? Right? Obedience starts in the small things. Right? So, big point about obedience, right? but let's get into the text here. Starting to get all excited about parenting again. So, Let's look here. The three ways that obedience turns up in this text. Simple ways. Here's the first one. They return to Jerusalem. Very simple point. Look at verse 12. <coughs> then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, why is this such a big deal that they return to Jerusalem? Don't turn there, but if you were to look in John chapter 21, before Jesus ascended, before this happened, in John 21, Jesus told the disciples, wait for me. Wait for me, I'm going to come talk to you. And Peter and some of his friends, Peter and some of the disciples said, no, we're going fishing. And they went out fishing. They, just, they took off. They went fishing. And Jesus went and found them. And then, you know, they realized it was him. He told them to cast their nets on the other side. They struggled. 
with doing what Jesus said. It was a tough time for them. And yet, in this case, we see it very clear. Luke is trying to point out all 11 went back. It's a big moment. I think it's a profound moment. This is the first time we see them actually doing it without question, without confusion, without all the stuff we've seen in their storyline, especially studying Acts. Jesus said, wait here, and they waited. Remember, they're all from Galilee. They have no reason to be in Jerusalem. They have no reason to spend the money, to hang out in the room, to do all the stuff they had to do. And they went. Nothing more profound than that. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, and they waited. Now, just for the sake of explaining something to you, you notice the distance between uh, Mount Olivet and Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day journey. Did you pick that up when we read that? And maybe some of you went, what is a Sabbath day journey? So this is just a freebie. Throw it out here for you. I'm going to explain to you what a Sabbath day journey is. And, and uh, this actually, well, I'll explain it to you and then I'll make my point. Sabbath day journey is very simple. Remember all the Jews when, when, when you know, God said, you're going to honor the Sabbath, don't work. You're going to work six days, you're going to take one day off. And then the Jews started thinking, well, how do we apply that? And they started coming up with all these rules to apply it, right? They missed the heart, and they start coming up with rules. Well, one of the big questions they had to ask themselves is, how far will we let people walk? How far will we let people walk before the walk actually starts becoming work? So somebody had this great idea. Not really great, but bright idea. How far, in the, in, when they were wandering in, in, the, in the desert, they're wandering around the desert, and then they would set up camp. And then outside the camp, they would put the tabernacle where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. They said, what was the distance between the camp and the tabernacle? Well, that's how far they walked on the Sabbath. It turned out to be about three-quarters of a mile. And so they said, the distance that God wants you to walk on the Sabbath is three-quarters of a mile. Hence, a Sabbath-day journey. My little subtle point is, this is what happens when you lose the heart of the Bible and only try to apply the rules of the Bible, right? You come up with silly things like a Sabbath-day journey. So they walk, but, but anyways, that's what it was, so it was three-quarters of a mile. That's it, just thought I'd pass that on, so when you read it, you know how far they walk. Okay, so they're there. Second way that we're going to see the obedience now in the text. First was they went back to Jerusalem. Second is they prayed Look at verse 14. <clears throat> and these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Well, just the first part there of 14 we're going to look at. reason why I wanted to point this out to you, that they were devoting themselves to prayer, is that Jesus had told them, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to show people me. You're going to tell people about me. You're going to bear testimony to me. What is the one thing that decides? This would be pretty obvious, easy one. Even if you don't know the answer, you can figure it out. Okay? And if you really are lost, just remember that little heading there, B, and then the word prayer. Okay, that'll give you the, the, the answer to this question. What is the one thing the disciples, the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do? Pray, exactly. It's the only thing that we have in all the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus prayed. He prayed. He prayed before Every big event, he prayed when things got stressful, he prayed when things were good, he prayed when things were bad, he prayed when I prayed all the time. So if you're going to be a witness of Jesus, you're going to devote yourself to prayer. They picked up on this. 
They picked up on the value of prayer. Now they're obeying. You go to Jerusalem, we're going to go. Now, we're his followers. What are we going to do? We're going to pray. We're going to wait. We're going to watch. We're going to stay in communion with God. And really, if you understand the Lord's Prayer, you have a lot to pray for. When Jesus taught us how to pray, he taught us all the things to pray for. We give glory to God. We pray for his will and his kingdom to come. We pray for forgiveness to be given to people. We pray that we would be forgiven. We pray that God would provide what we need each day. We pray for his glory and his power. I mean, all kinds of things you're praying for. And this is what they're doing. They are praying. So now we see their obedience. They take the three-quarter mile journey. They all go back. All 11. No one strays. No strays. No one wandering off going, I don't know about this. No Thomas is going, I don't know. I don't know if this is true. Right? They're all there. And then what are they doing? They are praying. Third way we see their obedience. <clears throat> we see their obedience in their unity. Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now there's a lot in there. I want to point something out to you. Notice just the way it says, all these with one accord. And I want to point something out to you, just let you know that that phrase, one accord, or some translations have of one mind, depending on your Bible translation, that word is used ten times to define the church in the book of Acts. It is almost the number one description. It's up there in the top three descriptions of the church. It's so important in the book of Acts that we need to just pause and define it. What does with one accord mean? It means this. It's a compound word. It means to rush along in unison. To run together in unison. Now, what does this mean? In order to understand this text, let's compare it with a struggle that we can have maybe in the American church. There's a struggle we can have in the American church. I've used this illustration before, but it fits here. I'll use it again. Uh, when I was a youth pastor years ago, I had a family come to the youth group, and I was getting to know them, and they were new to the church. I said, oh, you know, well, what brings you here? And they said, well, we uh, came from this church over here. They, had, they have the best children's program, and, and, uh, and so we brought our kids there. You, we believe your, your church has the best youth program of all the churches in, in town here. But, but, you know, we just want you to know that this church over here has the best college program, so when our kids graduate, we're going over there. Okay, so what kind of mindset is that? That is a mindset that says, I choose my church based upon what's best for me. All right, it's just consumer, consumer mindset. Right? So, so it's not about committing yourself to a group of people to serve God. It's about saying, how does this group give me what I need, what I need, what's best for me, what's best for my family, right? It's consumer mindset. Okay, it's a struggle we have. It's a struggle as a pastor to think, oh my, that church over there has this. I wonder if we should have that. Are we going to lose people? Right? You have that, those struggles that go on. Now this word, with one accord, absolutely flies in the face of that because what it is is a group of people locked in together. A group of people locked in together serving the same end goal. That's what it means. To rush along, to lock yourself together and then to move towards that same goal together. It's a shared passion, a shared love, a shared outcome, a shared desire. 
They didn't say, wow, we chose this church in Antioch because, you know, they have better coffee than the church in Philippi. And so we moved our family to Antioch because, you know, their coffee just rocks, right? They didn't do that. They weren't thinking along that line. They were saying, we're locking arms with these people and we're going to bear witness to Jesus in unison. It actually is kind of a musical term. It's the idea of kind of harmonizing, moving together. You'll notice when the band is up here and they're playing and, and when everything's kind of gelling, they're all kind of, you know, doing this together, right? It's just taking over. They're, just, they're locked in into one movement. That's the idea. So it says this. He says, they were, they were there in this room. And Ted had talked about the expectancy of this moment. They were there and they were locked in. And they were clicked together saying, we are going to bear witness to Jesus. This is what this is about. And I will guarantee you that is the only way that you can endure trials and persecution. Right? If, if, if we kind of allow consumerism to take over in our thought process about the church, we'll never endure trials and persecutions. We'll just be running the neck the, every, at every problem. But it's saying, no, man, we are lockstep on mission for Jesus. We're connecting together. We're committing with these people. This is why the book of Acts uses that ten times to describe the church. Ten times. But notice this unity. It wasn't just among the men. Notice what, who was in the room. You've got the women in the room. You've got Mary, mother of Jesus, her other children. Other, You know what? All of a sudden in the church, before the foot of the cross, so to speak, suddenly now you are locked and connected. And now all of a sudden it isn't like, okay, women, you go over there, and men, you're going to go over here, and you guys just kind of make our food for us while us men lock into this mission. No. In Christ, there's no man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. We are one body. They were lockstep together. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a wonderful you know, contrast. I think people reading that in the first century would have went, wow, they all were there? They all were locked in? Was everybody? It's incredible to think about. So in the first days, in the ascension, after the ascension of Jesus, they obeyed. They returned. They were praying. They were lockstep in, all one accord. Men, women, the whole thing, all locked in. And suddenly that, that, that unity locks them in and they're pressing on together to make the name of Jesus known. Okay, there's the obedience. Now, let's look at the understanding. This is a very important section because there's a, there's a difficult moment that Peter needs to help them with. And it's Judas. And you need to understand something about Judas and what he did. And how Peter needs to speak to this. And he's going to use the word of God to, to, to define it. But you know, Judas did something very profound and very horrible. He betrayed Jesus. But not only did he betray Jesus, he betrayed his brothers. These guys are hurting. These guys need some clarity. They're friends. You know, betrayal is different than all other kinds of sins. Right? I mean, I could borrow your lawnmower and break it. 
And if I say I'm sorry I can re- and, and I replace your lawnmower, we're good. We're good. But if I embezzle from you and I take down your family and, and I do horrible things like that to you, I can't just say, my bad. I'm sorry. Woo, that one's on me. I can't do that. It's betrayal. And these people are hurting. There's on one sense expectancy. On the other sense, there's just, I cannot believe Judas did this. Our friend, that he was that evil right there among us. I mean, could you imagine? This is a guy you spent three years with, you camped with, you sat around the fire with, you talked about, you served God with, you, you were on mission with, you, 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 know, you were just in community with this guy. And then he was willing for money to betray you and to put you through this. So Peter is facing this difficult situation. The reason why I want to explain this to you and set this context up is I want to show you what Peter did and how Peter used the word of God to explain their situation. Now before Jesus ascended into heaven, we see in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, a very simple statement. Luke 24, Jesus did this. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So, so here's the order of events. Jesus opens their minds, gives them a commission. He goes up to heaven, tells them to go to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem. They're together. They're praying. No doubt Judas is in the topic of conversations. What do we do? This guy hurt us. How do we understand this? we got to replace them. we only got 11. We need 12. What are we going to do? But Peter has something now. He understands the word of God. And here's what he does. I've probably over-divided this up, but, but I wanted to kind of take it slowly here. Peter uses the word of God to define the past, the present, and the future. Now let me show you what I mean by this. Look at the past. <clears throat> Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company, The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So Peter stands up. Now we know how many total followers there are. You got 120 people. So this is how the church started. Less people than what's in this room right now. Okay, is what is what 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 this worldwide mission of God started with. Okay? 120. And here they are. Peter stands up and he says to them, guys, I got this Judas thing. Let me put it in perspective. What happened with Judas had to happen. Now you say, why did it have to happen? Why did it have to happen? Why did Judas have to happen? He says, because it's in the Bible. You say, where is it in the Bible? It's in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Those will be the two Psalms he'll quote. And we'll look at those Psalms in a minute here. But here's what he does. I want to explain to you how Peter now looks at David and these two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. He suddenly realizes that God allowed David to experience many of the same things that Jesus was going to experience. 
so that, we, so that they, at that moment, could get a perspective on their, their, their point. Because you see, here's what happens. Jesus ascends into heaven. If you think about all the things that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, it wasn't really a whole lot. Go to the world, make disciples, bear witness, teach everything that the whole Bible points to me, and be a witness everywhere from Jerusalem to the end of the age. The Spirit's coming, so hang here till he comes. See ya. No other directions. So now he leaves, and you're like, okay. It's like, you know, 11 of us leaders here and about 120 people total. What do we do? What does it mean? How do we replace this guy? I don't understand it, right? I mean, it'd be pretty overwhelming. You've just been commissioned to launch a worldwide movement with no directions. But Peter realizes there are directions. God allowed David to experience a bunch of things so that at that moment they could look and get a perspective. So he goes to the past and he says, wait a minute, you know what I see in David? I see David suffering. Psalm 69 talks about his suffering. I see David being, you know, drinking vinegar and all of a sudden, because that's in Psalm 69, and wait a minute, Jesus was drinking. And all of a sudden the connections are being made. If I look at what happened to David, I can get perspective and direction. So he goes back to David. And what does he see in David? He sees everything he needs to know. He sees that David was being persecuted. And when David was persecuted, he made a statement. He said, the camp of these guys out here, the camp of my persecutors are desolate. It's one of the statements made in Psalm 69. And all of a sudden, it's starting to click for Peter. Wait a minute. I get it. I get it. I understand what you're saying here. Now let's look at what he does. So, so what Peter does is, first thing he does, he goes into the past, and he sees in these two psalms everything he needs to know about what is happening and what they should do. All of the directions found in the Bible. All right there. You've got to catch that, because these guys were not just kind of walking along on some kind of weird, random, little, mystical thing. They were grounded in the Word of God. The New Testament is not something new. It is the fulfillment of what's in the Old Testament. It's a new covenant in that God changes our hearts, but it's the message that is rooted there. And so these guys go back, and what does Peter do? He finds solace in the past. Now let's look at how he applies it to the present. He starts quoting from Psalms, from both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. He says, For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field. We don't need pictures of this, kids, okay? Not interested in this picture, okay? Uh, and it fell, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in its own language, Eldama, that is, field of blood. So he's saying, wait a minute. This guy who was numbered among us, he's, that's a quote. He's quoting from Psalm 69. Oh, yeah, this one who was numbered among us. He's from this desolate land, and that's in Psalm 69. Oh, that's exactly what happened. That's what, so now he's getting this perspective. Judas takes his money, he buys this field, he commits suicide on the field, and it's such a disgusting way. He must have jumped off a pretty large tree, and, right, and everything kind of gushed out, and it, horrible. And the reason why it's being pointed out that way 
is because it was so disgusting that everybody went, that field is disgusting, right? That's a defiled field. And so everybody walked away from it. And he's saying, oh, that's exactly what Psalm said would happen. That the accuser, the persecutor, would be left by himself in his own field. He's finding solace in the word of God. Right? The word of God is washing away the pain that Judas inflicted upon them. And so he says, listen, I want you to understand the experience we just went through and the horrible thing of our friend and his suicide and and the disgusting nature of it and all the talk that went on and all the shame that came upon us and everything that happened because betrayal hurts everybody. Betrayal hurts everybody. It hurts not just Jesus. It hurt the disciples. It hurt everybody. There's pain everywhere. The first thing they do is he goes to the word of God and he says, hey, man, this was supposed to happen. But then he goes on to the future, and he says, but this is also not only helping us define our experience, it's going to give us direction for the future. And look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Right? We just saw that. Let another take his office. Okay, there's a quote from Psalm 109. David had a persecutor come, and he said, I can't be with this guy who betrayed me I need another one to take his place. And, 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 and Peter says, wait a minute. God allowed David to go through this so that we can get some direction. So we need someone to take his place. So what did they do? Verse 21. So Peter describes this. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Notice that, a witness of his resurrection. There's the mission we're on. We're going to tell everybody Jesus rose from the dead. He's the king, he's the judge, he's your savior. And so he quotes and he says, okay, we found this, this, this direction in the word of God. So now we've got to find it, which means that there were many people that followed from the moment Jesus was baptized to the moment he ascended. And he says, there's the criterion. We need somebody who's seen it all. Who's been with us the whole time, never left us. Notice Peter is using and listening to the scriptures. Here's where his directions are coming from. And so they replaced Judas, look at 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas. Whenever you see bar in front of something, it means son. So it's Judas, son of Sabbas. So that isn't necessarily, and so then he says, who was also called Justice. The reason why is Barsabbas, isn't necessarily a last name. It's just a way of delineating them. So you could say this. You could say, I am Stephan, son of James, bar James, you would say, who's also called Steve. That's, that's what, what you have here. Just want to explain why they deliver all these names, so who we're talking about. So we've got Joseph, Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias, poor guy. His dad didn't get mentioned it's one of the questions I have in heaven. What happened? What was so bad with Matthias' dad? Why didn't he get credits? Anyways, um, not worth taking notes on. Just a random thought that goes through my head every time I read this passage. Verse 24. And they prayed and said, now notice, a first step. We've got two guys who fit the criterion. First step, pray. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they pray, God, you've got to direct us. And then they use lots. What are lots? Lots are dice. The priests used to carry them in their breastplates. And these dice had shapes on them, and, and if a certain combination of shapes came up, they would always take that that, that was God telling them which, what they were to do. And so early on, before we see the presence of the Holy Spirit, we see lots being used. And so what they would have done is they would have got on their knees probably and prayed, God, show us, direct us, guide us, show us. And then they would have thrown the lots and uh, they throw them in front of one guy, doesn't get it, throw them in front of the other guy, he gets it. And they believe the Spirit moved the dice. You'd notice the lots begin to diminish as the Spirit of God comes and there's not a need for this anymore. But God directed them to the replacement. But I want you to see how God did this. It was in the fact that Peter went to Scripture. And he allowed the Scriptures to give him an understanding. He began to get a perspective that God's Word spoke to this moment. And from this moment, he found comfort and solace and direction and understanding and perspective. And we'll see this throughout the book of Acts, that they will go, constantly go back over and over again to the Word of God to be the defining element for their life and how to understand the world. So, let's wrap this up. What do we get from this account? The mark of the early church is marked by obedience and it's marked by understanding. A simple obedience. Jesus says it, it settles it. This is what Jesus, how Jesus defines things. Obedience. And this obedience is is an obedience that, that, that lends itself to really a fruit. I mean, these guys going back to Jerusalem all as a whole and then saying, we're going we're gonna to follow Jesus. We're going to be in prayer. We're going to link arms together. We're going to just, just serve him together. And there's a freshness to that for me to stop and think, wait a minute, the church isn't about whether or not we can do a bunch of add, add things and add this and do this and do that and do all these things so that we could just gather in as many people as we can. The church is about all of us linking arms together and saying, man, let's be together prayerfully in service of Jesus. There's no greater way to spend your vapor of life than that. There is no greater way at the end of the day to link arms and say, man, you know what? This isn't about whether or not we're the biggest or smallest or whatever. This is about the fact that we get to be together, serve Jesus, follow him. And then we use the Word of God to define our reality for us. I don't come to the Word of God with my reality and say, well, you know, I need to adapt this to fit my experience. But to say, you know what, what I'm going through, I want to let the Word of God speak to it. And it really does. It is so amazing. And all of you, many of you know this to be true. Times at deep, deep moments of fear and worry and anxiety, we turn to the Word and it gives perspective and comfort. Helps us understand things. So if we're going to strip it down and get down to the simple reality of the Christian walk. Right? What, what, what does it mean? It means that we are people who say, man, we want to link arms and follow Jesus. We want to let the Word of God define our life and our reality and get our marching orders from there. And then we, from that we build whatever God wants us to build. So simple 
application questions for you. Two of them. Because why don't we always, right, do you obey perfectly? You know, I don't. Do I always turn to the Word of God to give me perspective? No. It's a struggle, right? So what do we, how do we deal with that struggle? Two questions I, I would just ask you to think about, pray about. Two really important questions. First one is this. What love of this world or desire of this life have I allowed to crowd out my obedience to Jesus? The reason why I don't obey Jesus is because oftentimes I find myself loving this world. It really comes down to that. There's something that I love, and I allow that to crowd it out. And the second question, it's exactly like the first one. What love of this world or desire of this life have I allowed to crowd out my desire to know God's word? It's easy to start allowing other things. It's amazing. Think about this. There's lots of helps and things that help us study the Bible, and I'm, I'm all for those helps by all means. But it is also so easy to get so addicted to the application notes in your study Bible that you don't actually read the Bible. Right? It's so easy to say, I need this person to do everything for me and cut up my meat and just constantly spoon feed it to me that I actually don't just say, can I just pick up my Bible and read it? Can I just do that? And I would just challenge you, don't dump all your study books, right? I've been a part, I've helped write some, right? I'm not doing, going against that. What I'm saying is this, though. I would just put one challenge out to you this week. Could you this week, for 10 minutes, grab a Bible with no notes and just read it? I don't care what you read. I mean, I mean you can even do like the whole, like, well, I don't know, just open it up and stick your finger in it. I don't care. Just read it. It is amazing how much you can understand. Why? If you are in Christ, you have the very spirit of the one who wrote it in you. It's in you. And it is amazing that you can pray and say, God, just open my eyes and let me see this. Show me the wonders of your truth right here. And I just want to challenge us to, to not get addicted to, uh, to, 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 the, to the baby food and to, and to make sure that we read it. Just read it. Maybe just before you go to bed, just read a psalm out loud, pray, and go to bed. Just read it. It's amazing because that's where the perspective of life comes. So how can we become a first century church? Obedience and understanding. Let's just pray. That would be true of us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this, this example, these Something changed when Jesus ascended. These guys were together in service of you. They obeyed as a whole. They were unified as a whole. They prayed as a whole. They turned to your word to get perspective and understanding and direction. Lord, may that same obedience mark us. Help us, God, to be honest about the loves and the passions and the things we have in our life. Help us, God, to, to be honest about those things that crowd out you. And Lord, show us those areas. May your spirit just show us right now those things where we've just allowed ourselves to love something other than you and we've lost direction. Maybe we feel disconnected from you because we haven't spent time with you. We've lost track of prayer. We've lost track of hearing the direction and the comfort that comes from Scripture. 
We get so caught up in other things that we're not back down to the basics. So God, just deal with our hearts. Allow this to be a defining moment for us that we might genuinely and truly reflect a witness of you to this world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.